Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's guest producer Josh over there. I guess enough with the pleasantries. Let's get back to it, Chuck. Tylenol Murders, part two. Part two. If you did not listen to the first part, uh, in 1982, seven people were murdered by ingesting Tylenol tainted with cyanide. All on the same day. All on the same day. America and much of the world is super freaked out. Mm-hmm. Johnson & Johnson is the manufacturer. And part one of part two uh, has to deal with Johnson & Johnson and how they handled this in a public relations sort of way. Right. Uh, because there were and are a huge company, like you said in the episode one, they held 37% of the market share, mm-hmm. which was many hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. of Tylenol that they're selling every year. And that's in 1982 dollars. Right, yeah. which is like gazillions now. <laughs> right. So it was a very big deal for that company. And the way they handled it is uh, taught in colleges and PR classes all over the world as uh, exactly how to handle a big public relations crisis like this. Like, it, it's literally called a textbook example of how how it's done. Yeah, they, they did a good job. Um, mm. Because as you remember from the last episode, they found out pretty sure early on that this had nothing to do with Johnson & Johnson. Right. Like it wasn't in their factory, it wasn't in their supply chain that it happened, almost certainly, and that it probably happened uh, by some crazed person taking them out of the store, tainting them maybe in the store, in the parking lot, then putting them back on the shelf. But Johnson Johnson can't come out on the news and say, hey, wasn't us. Right. Well, at first, though, and this this gets overlooked and left out of the um, the college business courses and the PR courses. At first, Johnson & Johnson was not in favor of a massive recall. Sure, because that looks... Well, it looks good in one way, but bad in another. And they actually didn't recall anything until Mayor Jane Byrne held her press conference on Friday calling for a recall of the Tylenol in Chicago. And Johnson & Johnson did a little face palm Mm -hmm. and went, yes, we're recalling all of the Tylenol in Chicago. Yes, what she said. Right. So... By Friday, uh, the 31st of September, is there 31 in September? Or was this October 1st? I have no idea. <laughs> I think it was October 1st. So anyway, by the Friday, two days after the death, yeah. the deaths, um, Johnson & Johnson recalled all of the Tylenol in Chicago. And that should have been enough. To them, that was enough. But this... PR crisis was so massive and spread so fast. And like we said earlier in part one, became global almost yeah. overnight. It was not enough. Yeah. And so Johnson & Johnson, within a week of the deaths, recalled every bottle of extra strength Tylenol in the United States, which is worth about $100 million at the time, took it back to their factories and destroyed it. So they say. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, both Johnson and Johnson. Right. I wonder if one of them was like, eh, I don't know about this. There, one of them said, okay, I'll take uh, all the states west of the Mississippi, North Dakota, South Dakota, and some <laughs> Wyoming, and then you take all the other states. That's a that's a part one joke. Uh, they even got an award, uh, the, the Public Relations Society of America, which is a real thing, mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not. 
They awarded them their Silver Anvil Award for how they handle the crisis. The Tylenol poisoning. That's right. Okay. And um, high-grade foods, remember we talked about the the bad wieners yeah. in the first episode. Yeah. The ballpark franks that um, supposedly had razor blades but did not. Right. That still created a public relations crisis for them, even though they were just these little jerks in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they won the Golden Anvil, right. which is one higher than silver. Because of how they handled the PR crisis brought about by the copycats of the actual Tylenol crisis. Which was, in fact, really brought about by two jerk kids in Detroit. Right. Really not even copycats. Not the Tylenol crisis. I wonder where those kids are today. Probably in the Senate. I bet one of them was the guy who did our uh, our lighting at our Detroit show. <laughs> <laughs> there was a smoke. I'll give him some more smoke. Yeah, guys, we, we did a show in Detroit a few years ago, and um, very famously, we still use that as the standard bearer for a bad crew. Bad. We had a guy that looked like a, a former roadie for Uriah Heap <laughs> that was running like a light show, basically, during the middle of our podcast, and like smoke came out. We were like, we had to stop the show almost. Like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah, well, the lighting was so bad <laughs> that your highlighter had turned, like, brown and you could no longer see it. the words. <laughs> and you asked him, we had to stop the show, and you had to ask him to use a different color light. Uh-huh. And his response, because Yumi was hanging out and our friend Chris Bowman was hanging out in the sound booth with the guy. Yeah. His response, according to them, was, they want smoke? I'll give him some more smoke. <laughs> and we got some more smoke. Like a smoke machine. Yeah. Man. And people ask us why we haven't been back to Detroit. That's a big reason. It's a big reason. Not the only reason. Uh, <laughs> okay. So they won the Golden Anvil for the, the Wiener uh, PR moves. Um, McNeil Consumer <laughs> Products, which is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. They actually make Tylenol. Yeah, they make the pills. Again, the way this all this supply chain works is really convoluted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, like you said, they didn't want to recall Johnson Johnson, everything at first. They want to kind of take it a little slower, I guess. Um, well, be- sure. because I mean, they'd is... found out the drugs were actually fine. Right. Thanks to Pinky McFarland. This is a hundred million dollars worth of stock that they were kind of feeling the pressure to recall. That's right. So they were kind of reluctant at first, especially if they were convinced that there was nothing wrong with the rest of them. They had no choice. No. That was the only way to do it was, was... To, to lose a lot of money. In, in favor of future gains. Yeah, but even at the time, a lot of people were like, this is it for Tylenol. Sure. The public has lost faith in Tylenol. So when Tylenol recalled 31 million 50-count bottles of extra-strength Tylenol and destroyed it all, there was a chance that not only were they losing $100 million, but that they were losing $100 million of a brand that had already lost the, the public trust and would never regain it. Mm-hmm. So... Which wasn't true, but yeah. No, but they didn't necessarily know that at the time. Not. It was still up in the air. Um, so they, it was basically 31 million sacrificial lambs that were killed to show the public this tainted Tylenol is gone forever. <laughs> That's right. Your chances of dying from taking extra strength Tylenol are now gone. Mm-hmm. You can go back to taking Tylenol now. That was one thing, and that was a big gesture. Yeah. Uh, but, which is what it amounted to. It was a gesture on behalf of Johnson & Johnson. But they did other stuff, too. They started to do things right. Out of their reluctance, once they finally said, there, we have to just go with this to save face and to win back public trust, 
they started to do things right, like including like uh, setting up a hotline, sure, putting out a hundred thousand dollar reward for information. Jump change, considering to, how much they had lost already. It's nineteen eighty two dollars. Well, still jump change. It's it is. Yeah, and that remains unclaimed. It does, um, but they but but because of all of this, Johnson and Johnson managed to regain the public trust and actually managed to position itself as a victim yeah. in all of this. Like, yes, there were these Which they the were. I mean, seven know. murder victims, yeah. and Johnson & Johnson, I don't think, ever tried to push them out of the spotlight, but they also managed to portray themselves as the victim of a, of a mad poisoner who may or may not had something out for them. But either way, their brand was taking a huge hit because of this, and they were a victim and were able to generate public sympathy, That's which right. is part of the road to regaining the public trust. Right, which is why it's taught in PR classes. Yeah. So um, we'll take you back to 1982. If you are if you weren't around then or old enough to be taking uh, OTC pills and pain relievers. OTC is over-the-counter, by the way. That's right. Okay. You down with OTC? <laughs> yeah, you know me. <laughs> so dumb. Uh, I love that you played along, though. I appreciate that. Sure, buddy. You could have made me feel stupid. We've been partners for 11 years almost now. Yeah, that'd be when next month or mm-hmm. this month. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Unbelievable. So uh <laughs> unbelievable. Not not in that way. Okay. <laughs> so here's how it used to happen. If you wanted to take a pill like a Tylenol, right. you would um get your bottle, mm-hmm. uh you would pop it open with your thumb. Well first first it came in a little box. Sure. But the box wasn't even glued shut. No. Um, you would pop it open with your finger, you would take out the cotton in there, mm-hmm. and you would take your pill. It was that easy. There was no tamper-proofing. No. There was no, the cotton was completely superfluous at this time. Yeah, cotton originally was introduced to keep bare aspirin, like the hard tablets, yeah. from getting crushed in transport. Yeah. And since they started using capsules and other stuff and figured out how to strengthen tablets— there was no reason for the cotton any longer, but because consumers expected it, I know. still today you'll find cotton in your sure. in your pills. There's no reason for it to be there except because the companies know that you want it to be there. You right. would be weirded out if there wasn't cotton in your pills. I imagine the cotton lobby had something to do with that too. Oh, I'll, I'll bet they're not they're not complaining. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, um, big cotton. They should. Uh, New fancy uh, OTC pills should have micromodal in there. Right. <laughs> it just comes with a pair of MeUndies stuffed into your pill bottle. That'd be a bonus. You're like, these have been worn. <laughs> so uh, this was a time, it was a very innocent time previous to this where you, you could like, and you pointed this out. I remember seeing this in grocery stores. Like I remember seeing mothers in grocery stores opening pro- food products and yeah. smelling them. Yes. <laughs> That's what you could do. And then closing it back and putting it back on the shelf, maybe. Yeah. Oh, there's a little mold in this one. Yeah. I mean, I'll just leave it for the next person. Forget poisoning. Like, the, the, these, they could be spitting in this stuff. It was allowed. It, that's just the way it was. Like, there was, America was innocent enough that that was fine. That's how we lived. And that sets up this Tylenol poisoning. To, it really shows how much of a jarring experience it was for yeah. America. Because all of a sudden... Like, it's finally sunk in in a couple of days. There's something wrong with the Tylenol. Somebody has gone out of their way to poison the Tylenol in order to randomly kill people. And the reason they were able to do this is because it's easy to, to get into the Tylenol, Super tamper with it, put it back, and no one will be any, any, uh, any more the wiser. 
And wait, it's not just Tylenol. Milk doesn't have anything that that keeps it tamper resistant. Yeah. Neither is orange juice. Neither is cereal. Neither does um, cottage cheese. Nothing does. And America freaked out. And this is the reason why this Tylenol poisoning is considered widely the first incident of domestic terrorism yeah. in the United States because it was terrorism pure and simple. America was terrified. They were petrified not only to take Tylenol or any over-the-counter medicine now, they were petrified to drink milk or give milk to their kids. Paula Prince, the flight attendant who was the last one to die uh -huh. in Chicago, she had a coworker who said, like, everything looked tainted now. I was afraid to give my kids milk. I was afraid to give my kids cereal. If they could get to the Tylenol, they could poison anything. And that was really emblematic of the, the attitude, the shock that everybody went through. And as a result, within six weeks, Tylenol said, oh, we got this covered. Yeah, and I have a feeling— they did this so fast, there had to have been this idea in place already. Yeah, it was. I saw I saw a reference that it was. And I imagine it was not done because they were like, well, it's a lot of money, and why why would we bother? It's like it's not like someone's going to poison the medicine. Right. And then that happened. So within six weeks, they had a box that was actually glued shut. Uh, so if your little box had been opened, you would be able to tell. Yeah, that was, that was part one of three of this tamper-resistant packaging. Uh, that little plastic seal over the, the top of the bottle after you open it. Uh, or no, 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 the, t the plastic is over the, the cap on the outside of the bottle. Yeah, like the plastic foil. And then the, uh, the actual foil was over the mouth of the bottle that mm -hmm. you, we all have to poke through now to pull out the cotton and whatever still uses cotton. None of that existed until the beginning of 1983. So all three of these are put in place within six weeks. Uh, not only that, they said, you know what? We're going to introduce the caplet, which everyone knows now. It was We didn't have them back then. Everything was a little capsule that you could literally pull apart, mm -hmm. and you could snort the Tylenol if you wanted to. Sure. Um, I'm quite sure some people did. I'm sure someone did. Uh, but the caplet is, you know, a tablet coated with an easy-to-swallow gelatin. It's solid. It's, um, I, I imagine you could tamper with it. And even, I even saw with all these things in place, they said nothing is tamper-proof. Right. But these measures really went a long way to restore the public, uh, you know, well, uh, like the good feelings about what was going on. Yeah. Within about a year, Tylenol or Johnson & Johnson managed to win the public's trust back in Tylenol. That's hard to believe. A year. That was really fast. But it also goes to show like just how perfectly they did everything from that from the time they committed to it on. Yeah, and I feel like I remember, like, commercials with CEOs and stuff addressing the public. Uh-huh, he became, I can't remember his name. I want to say Joffrey Beam, but it's like a shoe brand. Gabby oh, Johnson? I, no. no. Um, Bill Johnson? No. Jimmy Howard Johnson? Johnson? Yes. <laughs> I, this, I can't remember his name, but he, uh, Jimmy Johnson is way far away from that. Um, but he became a public face. He He would... You know, yeah. he'd go on to 60 Minutes and and he talked to Dan Rather and Ted Koppel and all those cats. Like he he was out there like showing how much the company cared. Yeah. And it had it had a huge effect. Uh, and then in 1983, Congress got involved. They passed what they dubbed the Tylenol Bill, which basically says if you do something like this, it's now a federal offense. Uh, a few years later in 1989, um, the FDA actually established guidelines for all manufacturers 
of any product, really, to make it tamper-proof. Yeah, because it wasn't just the OTC manufacturers that, that started doing this. They followed suit very quickly once Tylenol came out with it because they kind of had to if they yeah. wanted to keep up with Tylenol. Um, but also the uh, the manufacturers of everything, like every product, every consumer product started putting their products in like tamper-proof packaging. They like had to. Dial soap started coming wrapped in cellophane inside the box. Trap the chemicals in. I guess. <laughs> but also to show, like, nobody's injected this with lye or something like that. <laughs> Although lye is used in the making of soap, isn't it? Lye I remember soap, my yeah. fight club. It's <laughs> pretty funny. Someone injected soap into the soap. <laughs> All right, let's take another break, and we'll uh, come back and talk a little bit more about uh, the profile of the supposed mad poisoner right after this. Stop. All right. So uh, this was a very big case at the time. Obviously, like we've been saying, it was a landmark case. Um, so, of course, you're going to get um, psychological profiles, which, you know, we should do one on profiling, actually. Have we done that? I don't think so. That'd be a good one. Yeah. Because it always, like, seems like the trope in movies and TV. But right. it is kind of like that. No, it is a thing for sure. It's not like they just make this stuff up. But in the end, they said, you know, this is probably a man in his 20s or 30s, who was sort of a Jekyll and Hyde type. Uh, during the day, he's very ordinary. Mm -hmm. He could be in the desk cubicle next to you, and you wouldn't even know it. Every once in a while, you just hear him go, Whoa. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but deep in, his, in the recesses of his brain, everyone, he's plagued with self-doubt and has an illusion that a random killing can boost his sense of self-worth. Self-worth? <laughs> um which is just sounds like it's straight out of a movie. It sounds like a psychiatrist saying, I want to be on TV. Yeah. Listen to me. Uh, they also speculated, and this is just completely like conjecture, uh, was that he had probably already taken his own life uh, after the killings. That was one specific person who was said it? that. Yeah. Yeah. I it was, uh, I think, like a, the medical examiner for Cook County. Yeah. Um, he Dr. probably already uh, jumped off the bridge, so right. don't worry about it. Don't worry, everybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, he just threw that out there. I don't know if it was to calm people or not, but or maybe he was just throwing his two cents in. But um, I, I, I think you kind of said it earlier. I don't remember if it was part one or part two. The whole thing's just blurred and become a haze by now. But um, no one has ever been charged with the Tylenol murders. Yeah, that's the ending. But there has been a lot, there were a lot of suspects. Remember, Tylenol set up a hotline and this Tylenol task force, 140 person strong task force investigating this, chasing down leads, taking calls on the hotline, thousands and thousands of calls that were coming in. Yeah. Um, they were trying to whittle those down into actual tips that were worth pursuing. And out of all of them, they, they, they deemed 1,200 tips or 1,200 leads worth checking out. Right. That's a lot of leads for a case, um, even even considering you had 140 people working them. And I, I read somewhere that they started out with like 20,000 suspects or something like that. 
uh, and whittled it down to 400. Yeah, and the, sort of the sad part is, as quickly as they sort of figured a lot of this out uh, and had that 140-person task force, mm-hmm. they almost just as quickly, within a few months, realized that, like, we don't have a very good chance at finding this person. Yeah, it became clear very quickly. Yeah, they uh, whittled that down. By the last week of October, the task force was down to 40 people. By the end of the year, it was down to 20. And it was a situation, again, in 1982 where you didn't have security cameras everywhere. Mm -hmm. You didn't have uh, credit cards and debit cards um, creating paper trails. It was a lot easier back then to get away with something like this, to – to be completely unknown, to walk into a store, mm-hmm. maybe slip some Tylenol into your pocket, go out to the parking lot and come back in and slip them back on the shelf. Yeah, if you're cheap, really easy. You won't even go to the trouble of buying it. Yeah, I guess that's a good you point. Just steal it and then put it back. But, you know, people were using cash. If mm-hmm. there were uh, cameras in a place, they were probably trained on employees. I worked mm-hmm. at a Golden Pantry in college, mm-hmm. and the only camera we had was directly above us pointing down at the cash register. It was a... The one at Alps in in Atlanta Highway? Uh, Alps. No. Okay. The one uh, on the east side. College Station Road, I think. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting job. That's the one where I got a job. I needed a job. I got a job at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And I showed up. I took the one-hour training video, and they got my uniform number. I went home, and I was supposed to show up the next day, and I was just like, I can't do it. <laughs> oh, I can't go work at McDonald's. <laughs> and I got the Golden Pantry job later that day. There you go. Which, hey, man. Sure. It's like, sign me up. From Golden Arches to Golden <laughs> Pantry. That's like a rags to riches story. I was selling beer and cigarettes. Nice. It was pretty great. You're like, one for you, one for me. <laughs> oh, I would never do that. Um. All right. Where was I? Oh, yeah. I was at Golden Pantry. So the cameras trained on the register. They're not, they're not, you know, you could come and go in a store and and no one even knows in 1982. Right. So the cops have nothing to go on. Most importantly, no motive. That was a big one. Because remember, this is just a Jekyll and Hyde type who you'd never suspect. Who's probably at the bottom of the Chicago River. Right. Who also is engaged in some senseless random killings of people. Anonymous poisoning, killing, not even shooting. It just made zero sense whatsoever. So like we said earlier, the cops figured out within about a month, within the first month of the investigation, that this was, they were not going to have a break in this case. But that's not to say that they didn't have some suspects. Some people definitely did kind of come to, come to the fore, but not many of them. Yeah, but these two are really interesting sub-stories in and of themselves. For sure. Uh, the first guy's name was... Last name Arnold. First First name name Roger. Roger, that's right. I call him Richard. That's all right. But for good reason. Oh, sure. Because you said he was like the Richard Jewell of his day. Yeah. The uh, Olympic bomber who was not the bomber. Right. But But whose life was ruined because he basically was implicated as the Olympic bomber. Right. Same thing happened to this guy. Yeah, he was one of the first uh, named suspects. 49-year-old guy. So so put yourself in the position, okay? Uh The media is going berserk on the story. Everybody hears about it. It's a mad anonymous poisoner. And now all of a sudden there's a name and a face associated with it. Who's a suspect, but he's the first person named. Oh yeah. It's like people going crazy, like trying to get to this guy to interview him. Yeah. I have my doubts about this guy. Not that he did that, but there were a lot of hinky things that they found out about him. Sure. And then how it all ended up. Yeah. As you're about to see. So he was a DIY chemist. It's a big one. There's a 
Big thing right there. Because into chemistry. Yeah, they said he's a Jekyll and Hyde type who's probably into chemistry. That's right. Uh, he was a dock hand at uh, Jewel Foods at a warehouse west of Chicago. And Jewel Foods, there are a couple different Jewel Foods are where the Tylenol right. was bought. It's right. like a, a grocery store, a food market. It's all checking out so far. Yeah. Um, so the cops look into him and go to his house. He has a book, a handbook rather, on methods of killing people. How to kill people, A to Z. I don't know if that's the title, but that's, okay. a, that's a good one. <laughs> he had five unregistered guns. It's a big one. He admitted to having cyanide. Once. Yeah, but he said, I threw it out like at least six months before these murders. He's like, when were the murders again? Oh, yeah, six months <laughs> before that. That's when it was. And then his wife said, uh, uh, you know, they were investigating her and interviewing her. She was like, you know what, actually, I did take some Tylenol and felt really sick and threw up uh, one time. But again, I was it was probably due to overeating, and it was just that once. That was the fact of the podcast. So, like, you can't blame cops for saying this guy's a pretty good lead. Yeah, because you can kind of start to see, like, if you add all the other stuff together and then hear about the wife throwing up from Tylenol, we like, could could you see this guy, mm-hmm. like, toying with his wife, like, testing it out on her just enough yeah. to make her sick but not to kill her to see right. what happened, you know, yeah. see if she would notice? Who knows? Right. But the cops thoroughly investigated this guy and cleared him. There, there's not a there's not a person associated with the story that I came across who that thought said, he did it. Yeah. I actually think this guy did it. Yeah, for I sure. I didn't find one person who thought Ronald Ar- Ar- Roger Arnold actually did it. But in very short order, he proved that he was more than capable of murder because six months after he was cleared as a suspect, he was brought in for the murder of somebody else, a guy named John Stanisha. Stanisha. Stanisha, I would say. Yeah, I'm going with that too. Uh, sounds, sounds Slovak <laughs> or something. Yeah. Uh, he was 46. He was a Chicago um, a computer consultant. Which and, is, that's saying something in 1982. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Um, so here's what happened. Arnold, there was this bartender named, uh, or bar owner named Marty Sinclair, who Arnold had thought had initially turned him into the cops and right. ruined his life, essentially. Yeah. So he goes to kill who he thinks is Marty Sinclair, and it's actually this just completely innocent random guy who gets shot point blank. And so he, in fact, did kill somebody. He did. Because of what had happened to his life. It it was premeditated murder, even though it was the wrong person. He was definitely, he created an intentional homicide. He killed somebody on purpose. Mistaken identity killing, though. Right. And because of this, because it was directly related to the Tylenol poisonings, John Stanisha is um, frequently considered an eighth victim of the Tylenol killings, yeah. kind of like a, an Never honorary um, victim right. in this case. But it, it is kind of uh, appropriate that he just happened to be the, in the wrong place at the wrong time, a victim of mistaken identity. Yeah, You know, it would have like a slightly different ring to it if it had been the right guy. The fact that it was the wrong guy and I this know. poor dude just happened to be in the wrong bar and happened to look like the owner. That's just... It just is perfect for this for this saga. Yeah, I wonder what Marty Sinclair thought about all that. Uh, I'll bet he was not very happy. Probably not. But probably also very relieved and probably also guilt. Yeah, I would guess there's a touch of that. A range of emotions, I would imagine. Yeah, all over the place. So uh, Arnold ended up serving 15 years of a 30-year sentence, was released in 99, and died nine years later. Yep. 
So, Chuck, before we go on to the the main attraction as far as the suspects go, yeah. I propose that we take a break. Agreed. Okay, we'll be right back. Stop. All right, Chuck. So this dude, there was basically two suspects in this whole case. Mm-hmm. Out of, over all these years, there were basically two people. And again, no one was ever actually charged with the murders. But this guy came awfully close, and his name was James Lewis. Or and, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it was. But James Lewis came under the attention of the Chicago PD and the Tylenol Task Force when a letter showed up at Johnson & Johnson headquarters. And it was from... Allegedly, the Tylenol poisoner, the mad poisoner. Mm -hmm. And in the letter, it said basically like, I've spent $50 so far, and the whole thing has taken me about 10 minutes per bottle, and I've already killed seven people. I basically see no reason to stop. Pay me $1 million, and then I will stop the killings. And it had wire, a, he gave a bank account number. Right. Even. It said, wire me this money. Very, very uh, presciently. No, that's not the right word. Uh, <laughs> Stupidly? <laughs> maybe. But is it? No, it's not. So this letter has a New York postmark, but the bank account is associated with a travel agency in Chicago. And so the cops go, okay, this seems like it was dropped in our lap, but let's go check it out. Mm-hmm. And they find the owner of this travel agency that had closed up, had gone under. Um, and this guy is like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. It's like, no, I didn't write this letter, but I can guarantee I can tell you who did. It's a guy named Robert Richardson. And Robert Richardson, it turned out, was the husband of a woman named Nancy Richardson mm-hmm. who had worked at the travel agency. And when the travel agency went belly up, Nancy lost her job and never got her last paycheck. Well, Robert Richardson was the type of guy who would fixate on this. Right. And was even more so the type of guy who would write a letter to frame the owner of the travel agency for the Tylenol murderers in retaliation for that last paycheck. He was that kind of dude. Right. And so the cops started sniffing into this Robert Richardson cat, and they figured out pretty quickly that Robert Richardson didn't actually exist, that he was actually somebody else, a man named James Lewis. Right. So when we joked earlier about, is that his real name? Mm -hmm. And you said it was. It was. It was. (laughs) His name was not Robert Richardson, though. That was an alias. So... What they found out was that Robert Richardson was a tax consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, he had, and this is just a strange, ironic twist. When he was 20 years old, he tried to take his own life by swallowing aspirin. 36 of them. Yeah. So that's just neither here nor there, but an interesting no. little side note. Yeah, the fact that that, like most people don't have that as part of their past. So yeah. It is interesting that it came up. So he had a, a pretty long uh, rap sheet. Uh, he was wanted by postal inspectors for credit card fraud in Kansas City. Um, He was uh, indicted in 1978 for, and this one is just mind-blowing. Yeah. He's indicted for murder Mm -hmm. after police found remains of one of his former clients in bags in his attic, Mm -hmm. and he got let loose because it was an illegal search. 
But he he was caught with the body of one of his clients, yes, yeah. dismembered in his attic with no good explanation, as far as I've ever heard. Yeah. So, well, what explanation would be good? <laughs> uh, well, we were playing poker, and uh, one thing led to another, and right. yada we yada yada. Started yada, juggling and swords, and uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so his wife's uh, real name was Leanne, the one who worked at the travel agency and went unpaid. They fled Kansas City in December of '81. Um, and this was as U.S. postal inspectors were converging on them uh, about this uh, credit card scheme. Right. So they're like just bad people. Not the postal inspectors. No, no, no. The Lewises. Sure. They're great. Yeah. So they moved to Chicago. They changed their names uh, to Robert and Nancy, uh, Nancy Richardson. He got a, that job as a tax preparer. Uh, but then he was fired after a violent outburst in his office mm-hmm. uh, against his coworkers. Um. And then she lost her job, went unpaid. They they left Chicago. And this turns out this is what got them uh, exonerated from the Tylenol thing is they left Chicago and moved to New York uh, before this happened. Right before those same month. Right. But if the theory mm-hmm. held up that this person went around most likely in one day mm-hmm. and did all this stuff, then it couldn't have been them. No. And here's why. Because the cops had decided that it was done locally. And one of the other things that supported that local mad poisoner theory was because the cyanide ate through the gelatin capsules eventually. So it had a very, very short shelf life before the whole bottle just turned into a mush of cyanide powder and melted gelatin. So like you said, it had to have been done basically the day before the the 29th, on the 28th. They could not, no matter how hard they tried, they could not put James Lewis or his wife in Chicago that day. Right. They just couldn't. And for his part, James Lewis said, yeah, I wrote this letter. I wrote the letter to Johnson & Johnson framing that travel agency guy, but I did not, I did not poison the Tylenol. He's always been adamant about that. He's never toyed around with it. He's never messed around. He's never been coy. He's always been adamant that he did not poison that Tylenol. Although (laughs) the Tylenol task force tried to trip him up once. I guess to just get this on the record that he'd done this. But they asked him, like, in in an interview, okay, let's say you had done it. (laughs) How would you have done it? And he actually— He pulled an OJ. He showed them how he would have done it. Right. Yeah, he just didn't write a book about it. He just showed them in an interview. Yeah, and he defends this uh, later on by saying, (laughs) it was just a speculative scenario. I could tell you how Julius Caesar was killed, but that doesn't mean I was the killer. Right. I think the answer for me would have been, I don't know, man. Yeah. I'm innocent. I, don't, well, I can't figure this out. But he was like, here's how I'd do it. I've been waiting for you to ask me that. Uh, he's eventually found in New York City. Uh, he's at the public library um, with a reference book copying names and addresses of newspapers. Uh, I would imagine t- to send them letters like uh, Zodiac style. Yeah, because so we got to say this. So the cops figured out who James Lewis was before they found James Lewis. And it became part of the national media um, circus. It was a manhunt. While they were looking for James Lewis. Yeah. This guy was writing letters to newspapers. He called in a radio talk show. Oh, yeah. He was really relishing the the fact that the, the there was a national manhunt out for him. Who, like... That's that's what I'm saying. <laughs> On the one hand, uh, you got to kind of feel a little bit bad that this guy was kind of being railroaded into... You know, the rap for these murders. After his extortion attempt. <laughs> that's where the feeling bad for him just, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. He totally brought this on himself. 
Yeah, so they hauled him out of the New York Public Library. Uh, he was sentenced to 10 years for extortion attempt and 10 years for credit that original credit card fraud uh, and served 13 years and lives in uh, the greater Boston area today. So still today, there I think there are a few people who are like, I could see this guy. Maybe, maybe he could he could be it. Some Some detectives maintain that the Tylenol murder could have flown into O'Hare, rented a car, done that circuit. Sure flown or driven back to O'Hare and flown out all in the same day, the day before. Mm-hmm. But they could never put James Lewis in Chicago at all that day. Right. Um, so he was cleared finally, although he did serve two consecutive 10-year sentences, or he served 13 of the 20 years for that credit card fraud that the postal inspectors wanted him for and for the extortion letter. Um, and like you said, he lives in Cambridge, Mass. now. But then in 2009... The case, after basically having gone dormant in the early 80s, was reignited by the FBI because they worked up, they thought, a DNA profile from the capsules. And they raided James Lewis's house, um, demanded a fingerprint and DNA sample. James and Leanne Lewis fought it in court. The judge was like, no, you have to do this. Before leaving the courthouse, they gave him the samples and nothing has come of it. So I guess... That means tacitly that the Lewises were cleared once and for all of the Tylenol murders. Yeah. And, you know, the DNA thing is an interesting piece because um, they still have some samples of the cyanide. I guess that the capsules have have worn away by now Mm -hmm. if it had the cyanide in there. But there was and still is hope um, that DNA could could crack this case. just like eight or nine years ago, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Mm-hmm. Is that a two-parter? No. No? It's just a one-parter. Good podcast, though. I don't think so. That was a good episode. Sure. Uh, he grew up in Chicago, and uh, his parents were living in the greater Chicago area in 82, and he is the Unabomber. So right. they said, we might as well get a DNA sample and talk to him. Right. And um, he he was cleared. I don't think he was ever a super strong suspect. No. And he he probably would have admitted it, so... He was like, no, this is not me. Right. So um, the Unabomber has been cleared. <laughs> That's right. From the Tylenol murders. But that remains, the case remains unsolved to this day. I think yeah. they also have a fingerprint workup that they found on one of the bottles. And that and some DNA, it's, it's, they're just sitting around with that. There's There are no suspects. There are, Every suspect uh, has been cleared. Um, and there's nobody on the horizon. It's just an unsolved random series of killings that happened. Yeah, they're still working on it, though. Um, There's a police sergeant named Scott uh, Winkleman who has been on this task force for a long time, and he says he thinks it's solvable. Mm -hmm. Um, And his department did just solve a 45-year-old murder case, cold case. Man, if they solved this one, that would be... I know. ...the biggest cold case ever solved. I think... I think... I mean, who knows, but I could see maybe finding like a deathbed letter or something one day. Maybe. Like, I don't know if they're going to catch someone. And, at, at the and, bottom of the Chicago River. <laughs> and haul them off to jail. But um, I could see the truth coming out one day. I hope so for the families because um, Monica Janice, she's the, the niece of Adam, Stanley, and Teresa. Mm-hmm. She said her family to this day, this is from an article like last year, I think, um, said that they have still not gotten over it. She said um, her grandparents have passed now, but she said literally – Every day for the rest of their lives, they just cried about oh, man. Uh, the fact that they didn't know who did it. Um, she grew up, has been to therapy, therapy her whole life, 
because um, they were all victims, you know, that this post-traumatic stress disorder kicks in. Sure. Where she grew up fearing that any of her family members could die at any time. Um, oh, and that article, by the way, it was really good. It was called The Tylenol Murders, colon, mm-hmm. Is It Too Late to Solve the Famous Cold Case? And that was from A&E Real Crime and written by Jamie Bartosh. Nice. Joseph Manis, uh, her her dad, says that he still has dreams like, you know, on the reg about these murders. Um, he said he had one recently where everyone involved was in a room in the case. Uh, and then two black men in suits and glasses were laughing about how they got away with murder. Um, Michelle Rosen, she's the daughter of Mary Reiner. Right. Um, she has dedicated her life to investigating this on her own. And she doesn't agree with the lone, uh, the mad poisoner theory at all. No, this is this is interesting. Yeah, she thinks it had something to do with the supply chain. And that Johnson & Johnson knew this and covered it up. Yeah. Um, one of the things, one of the the things that people who believe this point to is that Johnson & Johnson recalled all of that Tylenol, 31 mm-hmm. million bottles, and then destroyed them, uh, allegedly without testing any of it. So we will never know whether it was— Pinky had the day off. Right. Whether whether it was beyond Chicago or just local to Chicago. Right. Seems like it took long enough that other people would have died in that week before the national recall was undertaken. Yeah. But— um, there was something very, very interesting that was a, a postscript to all this that does undermine that mad poisoner theory. Yeah, it was just a few years later in 1985, uh, a woman in New York named Diane uh, Ellsroth took two extra strength Tylenol capsules and died from cyanide poisoning. Um, but they found, I mean, it's just completely unrelated. Was it another copycat case? <sighs> Well, so, or or the original poisoner, maybe. So, this, but different cyanide. Right. The cyanide was definitely not the same cyanide right. from the same batch. It was chemically different. But there was another bottle found around the block from where Mary Ellsworth bought hers in Yonkers that did match that cyanide. So there were two bottles of extra strength Tylenol two years later in another state that had been um, tampered with. Yeah. The problem is this was after the th- the three prong tamper-resistant packaging had been um, introduced. Which means it was an inside job, right? I guess, because the tamper, the, the thing had not been obviously tampered with. And then Tylenol was never able to explain what happened. Yeah, and then within five days of her death, eight states outright banned the capsules, uh, Tylenol capsules. Right, and Tylenol, for its part, was like, we've been trying to get everybody to take caplets anyway, but right. they keep taking capsules, so we're making it. Uh, and then a guy wrote a book, right? Um, Scott Bartz. Yeah, a former Johnson & Johnson employee um, wrote in 2011 a self-published book um, on the Tylenol poisonings. And he said you know, what we were talking about earlier. He's like, this supply chain is so convoluted. Right. Um, basically, like, it could definitely could have happened at any point right. along the way. And his his idea is that, that Johnson & Johnson knew that it was in their distribution network, and they they covered it up. Self-published book. Yeah, you gotta you gotta note that for sure. I'm not knocking it. No, but it's noteworthy. It does. If there's like any hint of journalistic integrity in us, that feels like we have to note that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the Tylenol poisonings of 1982 in Chicago changed America, changed the world, but definitely changed America. It was the end of some form of innocence that we still had. Absolutely. 
If you want to know more about the Tylenol poisonings, go online. There's stuff all over the place, and you can go down that rabbit hole, and it's deep and wide. Since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, this is from Jen from Brunswick, Maine. Okay. Hey, guys. been listening for several years and never thought I'd have a... Uh, never thought a perfect time to write in would be related to synthetic farts. Remember the disgust episode? Yeah. We talked about synthetic farts. Yeah. It's a real thing. When I was in high school, my dad came across this stuff online uh, called Liquid ASS. That's horrible. Not allowed to curse, right? No. Is that a curse we word? Can spell it out, though. Sure. Um, or I guess maybe you should have said, like, A asterisk asterisk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, good name for a product, though. She said he found it on a joke web website and ordered some. And I have to tell you, it is the worst thing you've ever smelled. I can't even describe it. It makes you want to not breathe anymore. <laughs> the tiniest little drop is deadly. So, of course, I took it to college with me to play pranks. And boy, did it backfire. I thought it was pretty funny putting a couple of drops in the radiator uh, by my across-the-hall uh, across friend's room, not even, think, uh, not even thinking about what would happen when the heat turned on. Well, the heat turned on, and the whole floor of the dorm was amazingly disgusting and made us just about gag. The smell took almost a week to finally go away, <laughs> and I've not used it again in the 10 years since. That's probably, it's called learning your lesson. But she, like, way. still has the bottle. She's like, but I kept it. Right, just in case. <laughs> Uh, thank you for your interesting and entertaining podcast. Uh, this is the first podcast I ever listened to, and it's still always on the top of my download list. Thanks. Uh, thanks for giving this 28-year-old woman a platform on which to tell a story of synthetic farts that is not completely out of place. Signed, Anonymous. That is Jen Green. Thanks, Jen Green. Very brave of you to put your name on that one. Uh, especially, I wonder if you stepped up and said, uh, that horrible smell, that was my bad. Right. Uh, if you have a great story about college pranks, we want to hear about it. Um, you can get in touch with us via our social links by going to stuffyoushouldknow.com or you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.